All right, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Very good. Man, it's an honor to be here today. Um, like you said, I'm down in Winston-Salem. We helped plant a church three years ago that I get to be a pastor at. But I'm really grateful for this church. This is the church that I grew up in. So, man, this church, the ministry here, many of the people who are even in this room have had a massive impact on, on me. And I am who I am today because of how God used this place right here. And so, thank you. And I'm honored to be preaching here today. And so, if you guys would, you can open up your Bibles. You can turn or type to John 17. And we're going to be um, starting in verse 20. And so, this part of John is dealing with the last moments of Jesus' life. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And in this specific chapter, in verse 17, it's a prayer that he prays before they go. And he heads to the cross. And in this prayer, starting at the beginning of verse 17, Jesus begins by praying for himself. He knows that he's going to need God's help as he goes and does everything that he needs to do on the cross. And then he moves on and begins praying for his 11 disciples that are still with him there. Praying for the ministry that he has ahead of them. But then in the last part of this chapter, in, verse, in chapter 17, he turns to his last audience. The last people that he's praying for. And he's looking down the road in the future. And he begins praying for the future church. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. And so one of the reasons that this passage is so important for us today is because it is what Jesus is praying for you and for me. And not only that, these are, like I said, he is going to the cross. These are the last words that he is saying before he begins that journey. And typically when you think of someone's last words, they're of great importance. There's a lot of meaning to them as he passes them on. And so when we approach this passage today, and the reason why it's so important for us to hear it is wouldn't you want to know what Jesus is praying for you today? Wouldn't you want to know what is so important to him that he's using his last words before he goes to the cross to pass it on to us? And the thing that Jesus is praying for, the thing that he is saying in his last moments is this. It's unity. Jesus is talking about and he's praying for unity. See if you can pick this up as we begin reading. In verse 20 it says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. The big idea, church, that God has for us today in this passage is this. The church's unity is Jesus' priority. The church's unity is Jesus' priority. And as we talk about unity, it's probably good to have a definition of it. And so unity, I would use this definition. Unity is when people's differences take a back seat to a greater purpose. It's when our differences take a back seat to a greater purpose. Now, unfortunately... When we look at that definition and we look at the world around us today, there's not much alignment, right? In a study that was done last year, 2018, it found that 84% of Americans think that our country is deeply divided against one another. And they say that it's even more divided than it was 10 years ago. Many people are even saying that we live in the most divided time that our country has ever experienced. And no, you know what? Jesus is not just praying for the world out there, though. It's easy to see how the world is divided. Jesus is also praying this for the church. 
Because too often what we see in the church matches what we see in the world around us today. And you guys can probably feel that, right? You can feel the division that we have in our church. That's why for some of you, as you did Thanksgiving this week, you might have had some very awkward or hostile experiences, right? For some of us, that's why we have someone in our family that has not called us in over a decade. For some of us, that's why we have someone in our family that's walked away from the church. For some of us, man, that's why when we ever go, whenever we go into work, we have coworkers that hate working with us. And maybe for some of us, and you walk into your home and you're with your spouse, it feels more like a war zone than a place of peace. And so we feel that this is true not only for the world around us, but it's also true in the church. But here's what God's calling us to. God is calling us to not simply be a microcosm of the rest of the world around us, because what this divided world needs the most is a united church. And that's God's desire for us. And so what would it look like for us to do that? What does it look like for a church to be united with one another instead of just simply divided? What is the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for us and hopes for us? Well, number one, here's here's what Jesus is not talking about when he's calling us to be united with one another, okay? So number one, Jesus is calling us to unity, not uniformity. And there's a big difference between those two ideas, unity and uniformity. Unity is like a home. Uniformity is like a prison, okay? So when you think about prison, think uniformity. Literally, when you go there, you are given a uniform, all right? You're wearing the same thing as everybody else. You're eating the same things. You're on the same schedule. You're sleeping in the same cot. You have the same square footage as everybody. That's what it means to have uniformity. That's not what the church is called to be. Jesus is saying, hey, the church is not to have uniformity, it's to have unity. That means you can come together and you can have all kinds of differences but still be united with one another. And that's why you look in this room, you can have people that dress differently when we come to worship. You can have people with suits and ties and then shorts and sandals, right? You can have people who love different kinds of worship. You may have the traditional hymns and then the contemporary stuff. And then you have people that can even come together and sit in these rows and have secondary and tertiary theological differences. The idea is you can have these differences but still be united with one another. The only place that you can go to church and you see uniformity is a cult, all right? Don't go to cults. If you ever go into a church and they're all doing the same things, talking about the same things, eating the same things, maybe drinking the same Kool-Aid, you need to run, all right? Because that's not a church, that's a cult, And so that's not not what God is calling us to. He's calling us to unity, not uniformity. Jesus is also not talking about, hey, let's just make one big church. You know, people have read this passage and historically have said, hey, what God is telling us to do is just to bring all the churches together under one roof. And so, hey, let's take the Protestants and the Catholics and bring them together. Let's take the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans, and they should all be one church. And you know, there's nothing wrong with mergers. You know, that's That can be a good thing, but that can't be what Jesus is talking about here because when we look at this passage, it says that when the world sees it, they're going to be struck in such a way that they are going to be open to believing the truths of the gospel. But mergers don't do that. When mergers happen in the world today, do you see people stopping and staring with awe and wonder? Anyone? No. So a couple weeks ago, Disney Plus came out earlier this year. They had a massive merger. Disney and Fox um, came together. Now, how many of you, when you saw that, just stopped and said, behold, what love they have for one another? That's, That's not what mergers are about. And so that's not what Jesus is talking about with the church. And the last thing he's not talking about, Jesus is not talking about uniformity 
or for unity just for the sake of unity. Unity does not exist just for the sake of unity. Unity is always meant to point us to something else. It's like marriage. Marriage exists because it points to a greater truth, a greater reality. It points us to the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. And that's what unity is meant to do. It's to point us to something greater. And so what is it that Jesus is praying for then? What kind of unity does Jesus want to see in the church? Well, number one, we see that Jesus prays that we would be united around the message. Jesus prays we would be united around the message. And here's why that's important. Because God's mission is moved through our message. We see this clearly in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. When he says these only, he's referring to the 11 apostles sitting around him. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, Jesus is praying evangelistically here. Jesus is not content with the 11 guys sitting around him at the table that night. He's saying, I do not pray for these only, but for those who will also believe. You see, Jesus is praying for a future that many people will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they would put their faith and trust in him. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus' prayer to God in that moment is answered. Because if you're sitting here in these pews today, and you're a Christian, it's because God answered Jesus' prayer. Amen? That's what Jesus has a heart for. He wants to see the lost come to Christ. And you know what? He was not content when you and me came to Christ. He's praying that more and more and more people would come to faith in him. And if we see Jesus has a heart and a passion to pray for the lost to come to Christ, then that should be the heart and prayer of our church as well. How many of you guys are praying for the lost? If that marks Jesus' life, does that mark yours as well? Are you praying for the lost? Think about this. If God answered all your prayers, would the lostness of the people around you change at all? That's a good mark to say, man, am I praying for the lost the way that I should be? Man, and if we as a church are consistently praying for the lost, we're going to see God use that. Because if you show me a church that is consistently praying missionally, then you're going to see a church that is consistently living missionally. It's very connected with one another. And so we are to pray for the lost. But not only that, we can be a church, we can be a people that pray with confidence. And where do I see that? It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. You see, Jesus has given the apostles confidence that people are going to come to faith in him. And we see this even later on in Acts 18, when Jesus comes to the apostle Paul, and he says this, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And I have many people in this city who are my people. And so Paul stayed there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. See, what Paul was, or what God was saying to Paul in that moment is, I want you to stay in the city. He says, I have people here, not people who are Christians already, but people who will come to faith in Christ. And that gave Paul boldness to reach out because he knew that God had people who would come to faith. And here's the truth. People, in this city, in the cities around us, God has many people in these cities that are his as well. We can have confidence that God will bring people to faith around us. They're in the house next door to us. Maybe they're in the office or the classroom next to you. Maybe they're working out on the elliptical beside you. Maybe they're sitting across the table from you. But we can have confidence 
that as we take this message to people, that people will put their faith and trust in Christ. And not only that, so we pray and we pray with confidence, but we have a message that we get to share. We see Jesus say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, because Jesus gave the apostles a message that is powerful. He gave them the scriptures. He gave them the gospel. And this is the gospel that Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You guys, we have a message that saves people. It transforms them. It empowers them. Because it was not just the apostles' message. We, the church, have the same exact message today. We have the scriptures. We have the gospel. And you know what? The mission is still moved through this message today. And so as a church, what God is praying for us, what Jesus is praying for us in chapter 17, is that we would be a church that unites ourselves around this message. Because it's his power for salvation. And so what does it look like for us to be a church that's united around this message? Well, number one, we never move on from it. With this message, we never move on from it. It's the diving board that we start off with, and it's the pool that we swim in. And that means everything about our ministry should be about the word and about the gospel. It's got to be central to everything that we do. That's what it means to not move on from it. Number two, we don't elevate anything above it. Okay, here's what that's saying. Traditions, they don't trump it. Our senses, they don't surpass it. The words of others, they don't overshadow it. It doesn't matter if it's culture, a friend, or family, or even a pastor. Nothing that we have rises above the authority of Scripture and what God is saying to us. And so nothing else can be elevated above it. Number three, we don't water it down or change it. One of the things that we say at our church very often is if we come across something in Scripture that confronts you, you have only two options. You can either edit it or you can change your mind. And if we're Christians, that first option is not an option at all. If we come across something in Scripture that we don't like, we can't simply conform it to what we want it to be. The only options for Christians is to be conformed to Scripture and align ourselves with what God is saying and so here, here's what we need to hear. If Cornerstone ever does any of these things, if Cornerstone moves on from it, if it elevates anything above it, if it waters it down, you need to head for the doors because you need to find a different church. Because a church that is not united around the message will never have any meaningfully impact for the mission of God in the world today. Zero whatsoever. If we are not united around it as a church, you will fail to do what God has called you here to do. But you can trust that if we are a church that does unite around it, God will be faithful to use us. He will be seen. We will see people coming to faith in him because this is what he's called us to do. This is what he's prayed us to do. But simply being united around the message is not enough. It's a good first step. So we start by uniting ourselves around the scripture, but at some point we have to share it, okay? It's good to be united, but at some point, we all have to share it. Here's, not what, here's what I'm not talking about, okay? This is not sharing the message. You rolling down your windows and cranking up Christian music at the stoplight, all right? That's not sharing it. Um, you leaving a story booklet in a stall at the restaurant after church today. Gross. Don't do that. Um, that's not, you know, you, you flashing your vintage WWJD bracelet at the checkout line in Walmart, just hoping for a conversation to start. That's not sharing the message. Man, sharing the message, 
Man, faith only comes when we verbally declare something. It only happens that way. That's how God is saving people today. When people verbally, vocally share this message. Romans 10 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And here's the truth. We as a church cannot depend on pastors to be the only ones to share this gospel. I know that's our, our inclination. We just want to say, man, I just get them to church and, and Pastor Paul can, can share the gospel with them. But studies are showing more and more people are unwilling to step foot into a church for any reason whatsoever. That is going to become harder and harder for us to do, to say, hey, let me just invite someone to church and have someone else share the gospel. Because they're not willing to come. But here's what they are willing to do. They're willing to come into your home. They're willing to step foot into your life. And so what we need to hear today is that each and every single one of you is the primary access point for people to be able to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. Not a pastor, you. You have the message that they need to hear. You are the primary access point. And so Jesus prays that we would be united around the message. But he also prays for this. Number two, that we would have unity as a church. That we would have unity as a church because the mission is moved through our message, but the message is proved through our unity. And so when we think about, man, we have this message, it can only be proved by how we use it. And we see this in verse 21. He says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. It's this language of unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again in verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that we may become perfectly one, we're united, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You guys, Christianity is filled with all kinds of unbelievable claims. And Jesus could have chosen any number of ways to prove who he is and who he said he was. Jesus could have, instead of ascending into heaven, he could have just stayed here on earth. And that way, anyone who had questions or doubts could have just gone to him and they could have talked to him face to face. Well, he didn't choose to do that. He could have chosen to divinely write John 3.16 in the sky. So that way, if anyone had any questions, they could just look up and say, oh, of course. But he didn't choose that. The thing that Jesus chose to prove that he is who he says he was was the unity of the church. And that's an incredible thing, right? We are a key part of his plan. But it should be a weighty thing as well. Because unless we as the church are demonstrating loving and compelling unity to the world around us, then they will never be open to the claims of the gospel. Because it's a really hard sell when we say, man, we don't get along with each other, we kind of hate each other, we fight constantly, but hey, Jesus loves you. You want to join the church? Right? That's a hard sell. Because when we are not proving the message by our own lives with our own unity, you know what that does to the church? It makes the church look bad to the world. But even worse than that, we make Jesus look bad to the world. And so there's a weight that we are the proof that makes the gospel come to life for people. But here's the good news. 
It must be possible to have this kind of unity, otherwise Jesus wouldn't be praying for it. If Jesus is calling us to it, then it must be possible. And so we can have hope. And we can also have hope because we can look in thousands of years of our church history and see that the church did just that. In fact, it's the early church that got off in large part because of their loving and compelling unity in the midst of one of the hardest cultures for Christianity to exist in. But this unity is what helped them shoot up and spread throughout the world, throughout all of time. And so we can look back at them and say, man, what were they doing? Because they had a beautiful picture of unity, and it gives us a picture of what we could be as well. And so as we look back at the early church, here's some of the things that we saw them doing. Here's how they were united. Number one, they were united in sharing their lives with all people. In our world today, you know, what we hear is birds of a feather flock together. We are drawn to people who are like us. But when we look at the cross, we see Jesus who died for all kinds of people. And in the early church, we saw all kinds of people coming together in confusing ways, people that should never be rubbing shoulders and hanging out with one another, but they were doing it. And the world was shocked by that. What would it look like if our church was willing to do the same thing, to be able to come together with all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and show loving and compelling relationships to the world around us? What would it look like if people, the world, this city, looked in this church and saw compelling relationships between men and women, between young people and old people, between old members and new members, between the rich and the poor, between Republican and Democrat, between the racial minority and the racial majority. I'll tell you what, at the beginning of the church life, they didn't know what to do with that. And our world wouldn't know what to do with that today as well. And number two, they shared their possessions with one another. They were united in sharing their possessions. Now, I've got two little girls, okay? I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old named Karis and Afton. And they are wonderful, except when it comes time to share, all right? They, I think they're going to kill each other when it comes time to, hey, give that toy to your sister, all right? It is, it is like World War III in our house. And I'll be honest, it's not always easy for me to share too. I bet you guys can relate as well. But what we see in Acts 4 is something drastically different. In the early church, they were dramatically open-handed with everything that God had given them. In Acts 4, we see they're having garage sales. They're selling off their stuff to help meet the needs of other people in their church. That's what it meant to have a mind of unity. What would it look like for the church today to have that same dramatic open-handedness with what God has given us? My first taste of that was in college. I was a freshman. I was needing a ride somewhere. And so I went to my friend Greg, who was a senior, and I asked him, hey, can you give me a ride here? But instead of giving me a ride, he tossed me his keys and said, it's God's car anyway. Go ahead. Be careful with God's car, but you can take it. It's his. And that was a beautiful picture of, man, someone who saw everything that they have is God's, and therefore I can be open-handed with it. But not just for us to do that as a church. What would it look like for us as a church to do that to the people around us in the world? I'll tell you what that looked like for the early church. In the fourth century, the Roman emperor Julian wrote this about his frustrations with the church. He said, The Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It's a scandal that there's not a single Christian who is a beggar, and that these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for our poor as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should be rendering unto them. A Roman emperor 
was astounded by the, the openness of the early church, and the world would be too. What would our world look like or feel if they saw that with us today as two? Number three, and they were united in sharing their problems with one another. In Galatians 6, we see that the church was called to bear one another's burdens. And so, man, they believed that they should help carry one another's pains and struggles and hardships. And rather than just avoiding difficult people and ghosting them when things got too hard, they pressed into them. That's what it means to be one body. That's what it means to be united. Is When one of us is hurting, all of us is hurting. When one of us is going through pain and struggle, all of us feel that as well. Because we're one body. I mean, is there, are you the kind of person that's willing to share in other people's problems? Or are you running away, avoiding, and hiding from someone who needs you today? Number four, they were united in sharing their failures. You see, in our world today, when people fail, they're typically just cast aside. We can see this in every single newspaper, every single day, of someone who's failed and they're getting pushed aside. But the church does something radically different. We see this in the Apostle Paul. Paul was literally killing believers. And the same believers who lost people that they love or the same people who were being persecuted by him are the same people who brought him in and loved him and cared for him. You see, the Christian community can actually take failures, incorporate it, and turn it into wisdom. And we as the church, we don't expel failure we reconcile. And so are there any brothers and sisters that you need to reconcile with today? Who do you need to forgive? Or who do you need to go to and ask for forgiveness? That's what the early church did, and it blew the world away. It's the same thing that can happen with us. And if we were to live out that kind of unity, why is it that the world is drawn to that? When they see that in the church, why would they be drawn to it? Well, verse 22 says this, It gives us a hint. It says, The glory that you have given me, Jesus is saying this, the glory that the Father has given me, I now give to them, my disciples. You see, the world is drawn to this kind of thing because it's demonstrating God's glory. When you are demonstrating God's glory, here's what that means. You are showing people who God is and what he's like. That's what Jesus did In the 33 years he was on earth, he was showing people who God is and what he's like. And we see here in verse 22 that now he's ascending into heaven. What he's doing is he's passing on that job to the church. Now we get to show people who God is and what he's like. The reason why people are drawn into our unity is because they're getting a glimpse of who God is. That's why when we are united with one another, we are pointing people to a God who died for all people. Man, anyone can come to faith in Jesus Christ and they will find God with his arms wide open welcoming them. That's what they see when they see our unity. When we're united, we are pointing them to a God who gave away everything that he ever had to us. We're not just sharing, he's giving everything that he had. And so he gave his own life. He gave up his own place as God's only son so that we could now become sons and daughters of God as well. When we're united, we're pointing them to a God who presses into our problems and pursues us. It doesn't matter how much of a rebel we are. It doesn't matter how much that we run from him. No matter what, God is going to draw near to us and he's going to pursue us and he's going to meet us in our brokenness and in our problems. 
And when we're united, we're pointing them to a God who loves failures like us. There's nothing that we can do that can ultimately push him away because God will come and he will meet us where we're at and he will reconcile and restore us. When we're united as a church, we give people a vivid, tangible picture of a beautiful God who's done infinitely more than we have and is willing to do far more than we ever could. And we give people, man, a beautiful picture of glory. And people see this. And here's what Jesus says. When people see this in the church, there's an opportunity to respond. He says, when the church is united like this, it creates this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says, so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The world, the church is a, di- a visible demonstration to the world so that people can believe the claims of the gospel. You know, when they see this happening in the life of broken sinners, they can have hope that God can have the same transforming and saving power in their own life as well. And so it's an opportunity for them to believe, to hope that what God says is true. And so where do we live this out as a church? If that's what unity looks like, where do we live that out? We do that in two different ways. We do that as we gather, and we do it as we scatter. And so we do it as we gather, like here on Sunday mornings. When we worship together, it's an opportunity for people to come and see this unity. When we come together and the way that we sit, all kinds of people sitting with each other, the way you talk to each other, the way that you relate, the way that you just do life, it's an opportunity for people to see this kind of unity. And so we do it as we gather, but we also do it as we scatter. And that's us going out into the world and connecting with one another outside of the walls of these churches. People can come and see the way that we're relating to one another in our homes and when we go out to eat and when our kids play together. They get to see this unity. And so we go and we show that to other people out in the world today. And here's what this does. When people interact with this kind of unity, this kind of unity entices the lost and it also exposes the lost. I'll give you two examples of this. This kind of unity entices the lost. My community group, we have a small group of people that get together every single week, and we do life together. We, man, spend time in God's word, and we're on mission. We're doing these different things, and man, we frequently have people from outside come in who are lost. We were gathering together one week, and we had a couple who came. They're not in the church, and we were talking about suffering And I'll tell you what, over the last three years, my community group has been through a lot of very hard stuff. We've walked through a lot of difficult things together. And so as we're talking about suffering, we're giving very real-life examples of what that's looked like for us, the way that we've loved and cared for one another in those moments. And I'll I'll never forget, the couple came up to me after we were finished that night, and he said, hey, can I ask you a question? And I said, of course. And he says, are you guys for real? Is this really what you're like? I said, yeah. He's like, well, let me tell you what. If this truly is what you're like, it's beautiful. Because they saw the unity that God has called us to in action. And they're enticed by it. They say, I want a taste of that. And so this kind of unity entices the lost, but it also exposes the lost. This is how my friend Donovan came to faith in Jesus Christ because it exposes the lostness of people who think they're Christians, but they're not. When my friend Donovan went to college, he thought he was a Christian, but he began hanging out with real believers, 
and saw the way that they talked to one another. He saw the vulnerability and the depth in which they just did life with one another. He looked at what they made priorities in their life. And as he saw that, he said, I'm not for real. I mean, I thought I was a Christian, but I'm not because I'm getting a real picture of what it is right here. And so when people who are religiously lost come into that, it exposes them and gives them an opportunity to really come into faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's where God's calling us to do that. And hopefully you guys hear this. And and for me, man, it's convicting because it's a beautiful, compelling picture of what unity can be, right? Hopefully we get excited about that and say, hey, that's what I want our church to look like. That's what I want my life to look like. And so the question is, how do we start doing it? How do we actually live that out with one another? Well, here's, here's the hard truth. It's not a, flip, a switch that we can just flip on, right? The answer is not inside of us. Because if it were, then all we would have to do is say, okay, let's start doing this. But that is not what matches what we see in the world, right? That's not what we see in the church. The answer cannot be inside of us. Because here's what is inside of you. Here's what's inside of me. It's sin, and primarily two kinds of sin that get in the way of us experiencing real unity. One of those things is pride, and the other is selfishness. You see, because pride, whenever we have pride, we always want to feel better about ourselves. We're always trying to make ourselves feel good, and how we do that is we compare and contrast ourselves with other people. And when we do that, that can never lead to unity. It always leads to division. And when we have selfishness, it's saying, we want our lives to be all about me. I want what I want, when I want, how I want it. It doesn't matter what other people think, and it, allow, it doesn't allow us to give away the very things that make unity possible, like forgiveness or mercy and grace. And so while we have these things inside of us, unity of this kind that Jesus is talking about is not possible. And that's why Jesus prays for the last thing. The last thing he wants for us is this. Jesus prays that we would have union with God. Jesus prays we would have union with God. He knows that's the answer. And we see this just in the very three words at the beginning of verse 23. It says this, I in them. You see, the only way that we can experience unity at Cornerstone Church is if all of us first are experiencing a personal and deep union with God. We have to get God in us. And what I'm talking about today is becoming a Christian. And I want to recognize, man, there are probably maybe some people here who are here today and you'd say, man, I'm not a Christian. I want to say, man, we're glad you're here. Maybe some of you are here and you're like, I don't know what I believe. You know what? If you do not have a relationship with God, it is not possible for you to have unity at least not this kind of unity that God is talking about. And you might say, I disagree, I can have unity, but I'm saying according to what we see in Scripture, you cannot have the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. Here's what you might experience. You might be able to experience unity publicly, but something is different privately. We all know what it means to fake it, to put up this facade. It can look like it's real, but deep down we know that it's not. Or maybe you're pursuing unity And you might be doing it for all the wrong reasons. And so if you're doing it, but you have the wrong motivations, that counts for nothing. I remember being in college, and I was helping organize a unity event. And I remember being there, and the leader next to me leans over and says, 
man, this is going to look so good on my resume. Because it was all about self-serving. It's about what he could get out of it. And then you might be able to pursue it, but you're pursuing it without purpose. Because it has to ultimately point to something else, right? Unity cannot exist for the sake of unity. It always is about something more. And so what stands in the way of you experiencing real unity, it all comes down to your sin, your pride and your selfishness. And as long as you have that in your life, you will forever be on the outside looking in. And so what you need is a transformation from the inside out. And that's why Jesus went to the cross test, the cross for us. Jesus desires us to be able to experience that. And that's why he went to the cross. If you're not a believer, you need the cross today because here's what that does. When we look at the cross, our pride and our selfishness, they fall down. They fall flat. Because when you look at the cross, it tears down your pride. Because when you look at it, you cannot possibly think that you're better than anybody else. Jesus died on the cross for your sins just as much as anybody else's. And when you see that, you're like, man, if God did that for me, he must be willing to do that for other people. And therefore, I can look at people differently now too. When we feel like we're no better than anybody else, it changes the way that we look at people. It changes the way we relate to them. And when we look at the cross, it frees us from selfishness because there we see a God who gave everything for us. He held nothing back. We're recipients of everything that we could ever want and we could ever need and allows us to, to be generous with others as well. In Ephesians 2, it talks about the cross breaking down, tearing down the dividing walls of hostility in our hearts. The cross tears down our pride and selfishness, which for many of us is the very thing that keeps us from a relationship with God in the first place. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, hear that today. Because that's God's invitation for you. He's saying, I'm making a way for you to finally experience union with me. That's God's call for you. If you're here today and you're a Christian, what about you? Man, what is God's way for you to experience unity? Well, it's the same exact thing. Because if you're a Christian and you are not experiencing unity, it's probably because sin, like pride and selfishness, has crept back into your heart. And the only way that we can root that out is to go back to the cross over and over and over and over again. Because that's what tears those out and allows us to relate to God and to one another once again the way we were meant to. Tim Keller says this, we have to rub our nose in the cross every day. We will never completely love until you know that you're loved completely. And so as we close, I just want to read the last verses of this chapter because it shows God's heart for us and what really this has all been about. Verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, the ultimate goal of unity is this. At the end of the day and in eternity, we get God. That's why God wants us to be united to him because one day we will know and see his glory perfectly. We will know him perfectly and we will feel his love perfectly. That's what it's all about so that one day we can have that. That's why our union with God is so important. But also, when our, we have union with one another as a church, 
it allows more and more people to go into heaven and experience that with him as well. That's why God's called us to be united so that we all can one day see and experience him for what he truly is. And so, as we come to a close, let's pray together. And I just want to give you guys some prompts that maybe you can pray today. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, maybe you can pray something like this. God, blank, has kept me from seeking union with you as my Father, my Lord, and my Savior. What are the things that are keeping you from entering into a relationship with Him? And would you give that over to Him? If you're a believer, maybe here's the prayer that you can pray. God, blank has kept me from experiencing unity with you and others in my life. Man, what's that thing that's getting in the way of you experiencing that unity that God wants with you and that He wants you to have with the church? What's in the way? Would you repent of that today? And we all can pray this. God, help me to seek unity with blank. Man, who is that person that's come to your mind during this message today that you know you need to seek unity with? And would you pray that God would help you do whatever it takes to make that happen? And then lastly, God, would you use the unity I have with this church, with this church community to reach blank? Who's that person that you want to see come to faith in Christ? Man, pray that the church's unity would be a way that it could draw that person to faith. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for this word. God, we pray that we would not be unmoved by it. God, this is of the greatest importance to you. And we thank you that you have made a way through the cross for us to experience unity with you and as a church. God, I pray for Cornerstone Church in particular. God, that you would unite this church. And God, through its unity, you would use them to reach many people in this city. God, would you use them to start a movement that your kingdom would grow and expand and move forward here in this place because of the beautiful, compelling relationships and unity that you are making here. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Lord, this is my 